We The People Live is brought to you by AT&T. You can enjoy unlimited entertainment with unlimited data from AT&T. Don't settle for any unlimited data plan. Only the AT&T Unlimited Plus plan comes with HBO included. Learn more at att.com slash unlimited. After 22 gigabytes of data usage, AT&T may slow speeds. Credits for HBO start within two bills. Channels available are subject to change. Charges, other usage and restrictions apply, of course. See att.com slash unlimited for details. Today's episode of We The People Live is brought to you by Open Account, which is a podcast that gets personal about making and losing and living with money. It's created by Umpqua Bank and hosted by Suchin Park. The new season starts on June 30th, so subscribe to Open Account and you can download past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. G'day, humans. Welcome to We The People Live, the discussion show for planet Earth, the place that makes debate healthy again. I'm Josh Zepps, and let me ask you, what do you do on a daily basis that you think is the most morally consequential thing? I was thinking about this recently, and I had to conclude it's probably eating the flesh of other sentient creatures. The fact that I do that multiple times a day without knowing what their lives were like, although I actually do know what their lives were like, because unless I went to great pains to not consume the 95% of meat that most of us do consume, I know that they led horrible, rotten lives. But I eat it because it's tasty. And in conversations that I've had with with Sam Harris, who's tried to be a vegetarian, as I have in the past, I was a, a fish eater only for some time, it can be a bit tricky. Richard Dawkins is now a vegetarian at home alone. He's, of course, of course himself flexitarian. He doesn't kick up a huge stink if someone serves him meat at a, at a dinner party, but he tries to avoid it. And I was thinking about this sort of burgeoning movement, this growing awareness, which we don't have time to pay much attention to at the moment because of all the other crazy stuff that's going on in the world, politically and culturally. But I thought we would just step back and take a breather. This came up and, and look into it today, look into the morality and the ethics of, of eating meat humanely and the possibility of future technological advances, which might make the actual consumption of flesh from sentient creatures redundant. That's what immediately brought this to my attention was an article about the development of what some people call artificial meat, what other people call lab-grown meat, and what today's guest calls clean meat. In other words, actual flesh from an actual animal that doesn't exist. (laughs) In other words, you rebuild the flesh of actual animal flesh, but in a lab in a Petri dish without the involvement of any conscious creature. That's a subject which I really want to get into more deeply in a future show. But just to lay the groundwork of the kind of ethics of human meat eating, I wanted to speak today to Paul Shapiro, who's the Vice President of Policy for the Humane Society of the United States and the founder of Compassion Over Killing. It's an interesting conversation. It's just opening a little door into something which is a huge moral question. I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Paul Shapiro. This is We the People. Live. Paul Shapiro, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm always interested when people devote their lives to to a cause. Why that particular cause, right? There, I mean, there are so many. There's always an opportunity cost in any particular thing that we do in life, and there are so many things that seem screwy about the way that we live, especially nowadays. I think with the state of politics and so on. I know that your history with animal welfare started a lot long time before Donald Trump was the president of the United States. But of all the things that one could devote oneself to, why this? 
What a great question. Well, my goal is to try to leave the world better than it was had I not have been born. So when I think about what it means to be better, I really think about reducing as much suffering on the planet as I can and hopefully increasing as much happiness as I can. But I'm a lot more concerned about just preventing misery and privation. And of course, there's all types of suffering on Earth. But if you look at the sheer number of animals who we are exploiting, especially in the agribusiness industry, and the fact that torture is not an exception to the rule, but rather is the rule for the vast majority of those animals, it's a huge universe of, of uh, torment and misery that there is to be reduced. I really think that future generations are going to look back in utter revulsion at the ways in which we so commonly abused animals in our era and in which the way in which we discounted their very basic interests. So it's not to say that there aren't other important issues. Indeed, there are many. But I think that if we're concerned about making the world a better place, a more peaceful, humane place, we need to be concerned about all of us, not just those of us who happen to be homo sapiens. So is this a war against industrialized factory farming where we just cram as many hogs as we can into concentrated animal feeding operations? Or is this a war on the consumption of the flesh of animals, period? Great question. Well, I do think there is a war going on, and it's a war that is being waged against animals. And I really see those of us in the animal welfare community as peacemakers who are trying to prevent that war. Now, where people come down is going to be a matter, I think, where reasonable people can agree to disagree. Some people are going to say we don't have to eat animals, and doing so causes a lot of suffering and violence toward them, so let's not eat them. Other people are going to say, well, we shouldn't torture them, but I feel okay with eating them. And I think that that's a reasonable debate that people can have. I myself uh, am a vegan and have been a vegan for over 23 years. But I think that reasonable people, again, can agree to disagree on that. What isn't that reasonable, though, is the status quo, which is the fact that more than nine out of 10 of the animals who we are eating are being treated in ways that are so repulsive that most people wouldn't even want to bear witness to their suffering, let alone would they want to participate in the cruelty. And most people eat meat in spite of how it's produced, not because of how it's produced. And when they find out what the conditions are, like the ones that you just described, Josh, they're usually not that pleased. So let's, let's, I want to quickly take, take a snapshot of how horrible that is and then just agree to agree, because I, I think there's there's so little disagreement. I, I completely agree with you that people consume industrialized uh, flesh be, in spite of how it's raised, not because of how it's raised. Nobody that I know feels comfortable about this. Very few people who I've ever met in my entire life are the kinds of people who say animals have no interests whatsoever and mm-hmm. I don't care how they're treated at all. It just doesn't concern me. Mostly people hold their noses because food is cheap at the moment. Uh, it's easy to access and... It, it it comes in such a sterilized way, covered in cling wrap at the at the supermarket, that it's easy to to live this kind of state of cognitive dissonance where we know intellectually how bad it is, but it doesn't actually impact us on a daily basis. So we're able to kind of blind ourselves to it. So let's just establish briefly. Can you give us a snapshot of how we treat how we currently treat animals? And I promise, listeners, we're not going to spend a long time dwelling on all this gory stuff, but let's just get gory for a moment so that we establish (laughs) the the reality of how most animals are are living their lives in 2017. Is it it possible to, to summarize that? 
I will summarize it briefly and mercifully, which is uh, sadly the opposite of how these animals live. Um, so let's first just take pigs as an example since you mentioned them. I mean, these are animals who are smarter than dogs. They easily learn to do things like sit on command. We can use them even for herding sheep. We even teach them in labs to play video games using joysticks so they control with their mouths while looking at the monitor. Um, it's really an, an, incredible, uh, an, an incredible species. And yet think about what happens to them. Most of the pigs who we raise on factory farms who are breeding pigs, those who are being bred to produce the pigs who are then consumed, are kept in what are known as gestation crates. These are crates that the pigs are locked in that are two feet wide. They can't turn around their whole lives. They're not in there temporarily. It's not like a breeding kennel. They're in there 24-7, back and forth between different types of these narrow crates, really for three or four years. So imagine if your neighbor uh, for four years kept his dog inside of a crate where she couldn't even turn around. She would develop pressure sores from laying in the same position all the time. She would maniacally bite at the bars of her cage. And eventually, she just goes insane. And she gives up hope and starts exhibiting learned helplessness. That's the reality for literally millions of pigs every year at this very moment. Not just every year, but at this very moment in the U.S. alone. And just one other example, if you think about the way that uh, eggs are produced in our country... Nine out of 10 of the egg cartons that are sold in the U.S. come from birds who are locked in what are known as battery cages. These are cages that are so cramped that the birds are unable even to spread their wings. I mean, each bird has less space than an iPad on which to live for her entire life. She can't spread her wings. She can't lay her eggs in a nest. She can't perch. She can't engage in all of these normal, important, natural behaviors to her. And instead, she just lives a life of misery, uh, being confined wing to wing in these cages where they never see the sun. They never touch the earth. They never really even take a step. So again, the point is not to depress them. And the point is certainly not to uh, find egregious examples that are outside of the norm. These are just standard egg and pork industry practices that are the perfect norm about what happens in these industries. And like you said, Josh, most people would never want to support that if they actually saw it with their own eyes. Is it, uh, is it uniquely bad in any particular parts of the world? I know that the European Union has tried to introduce laws, well, not has tried to, has introduced laws specifically surrounding the welfare of, of pigs and I believe chickens. But uh, here in the United States, a lot of those conditions still remain. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Josh. So the EU and some of the Scandinavian countries have led the way on implementing some modest yet important legislation to protect the welfare of many farm animals. An increasing number of states in the U.S. have now started doing this. In fact, 11 states have now adopted at least some reforms in the way that farm animals can be treated. And perhaps more importantly, a lot of the big retailers, grocery stores and fast food companies, for example, have started implementing standards requiring that their suppliers phase in better conditions for their animals. So there is movement in the right direction, uh, but at the same time, these animals still have meager legal protections, including even in the EU. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, if you were to bring your dog to the vet and you say, hey, doc, uh, I want to, I'm concerned about pet overpopulation. Can you neuter my dog? The vet says, sure, no problem, and just goes to town on your dog, cuts his testicles off without any pain relief. That doctor could lose his or her license, be charged with criminal animal cruelty, um, be uh, subject to a, a civil litigation. But if it wasn't a dog, but if it was a pig, 
and there was no painkiller used at all, just cutting the testicles out of the animal. It's just standard pork industry practice. In fact, uh, somebody could probably get, in many states in the U.S., would get a greater punishment for setting a painting of a pig on fire than setting an actual pig on fire. So we have a real problem, even with the laws that have been passed, which are historically important, and they're laying the groundwork for legal protections for animals into the future. We still have a problem where farm animals are essentially in a legal category where people can do almost anything that they want to them, no matter how egregious. So let's let's accept that we accept that and, and move on to the broader question of our of our consumption of, of animals. Um, if you could snap your fingers and either eradicate all factory farming so that we lived in a more of a pre-industrial relationship to, to animals, but we still ate meat and we still milked them, milked cows and we still ate eggs um, and we still used leather, or you could, but but you could say, but but you knew that we were never not going to do that. That we were never going to become majority vegetarian or majority vegan. We were all going to remain as as keen on eating animal flesh as we currently are. Or you could snap your your fingers and uh, take the the chance that uh, that we were all going to to give it up, but you wouldn't know for sure. In other words, the the sort of status quo that we find ourselves in, the possibility of working towards a, a future where people are not using animals anymore, which, which would you take? Ha, I love these kinds of thought experiments. A lot of people hate answering them, but I actually enjoy these type of thought experiments, so I'm glad you're asking. You know, I, I would like to see world peace, um, and so uh, that may give some indication. At the same time, uh, my thinking is along the lines of uh, your fellow Australian Peter Singers in that uh, I would like to choose whatever reduces the most amount of suffering. So I'd have to do the calculation. You know, right now we have billions upon billions of uh, farm animals who are enduring uh, serious agony on a daily basis for months or in some cases even years on end prior to slaughter. You compare that to the alternative, it would also depend on how much meat people are eating because you have, uh, for example, in America and Australia, we're two of the biggest meat consumers on the planet in terms of per capita meat consumption, whereas other nations have much lower rates of meat consumption, which means fewer animals are sentenced to factory farms and slaughter plants. But the real thing that I think is going to make a difference is not necessarily um, these type of thought experiments, which I really enjoy but rather technologies that I think will free animals in the same way that, for example, kerosene freed whales by developing a superior, cheaper alternative to whale oil, or in the same way that Henry Ford freed horses from being our laborers in the streets and throughout our our cities uh, because he had a better alternative. I really think that the advancements both in plant-based meats and in the so-called clean meats, these are real meat without the animals where we can take a, a cell from an animal and grow real meat from them. Uh, I think that those are going to help obviate the the uh, desire for animal exploitation, um, especially the cellular agriculture, which is producing real animal products. Uh, this isn't science fiction, it's science fact. In fact, uh, I'm proud to say that I was one of the first people on earth ever to eat clean meat. I ate um, about three years ago, I ate beef that had been grown in the lab from taken from a biopsy of a real cow grown outside of the cow. And since then, I've eaten clean liver, clean dairy. We're now of the capacity to grow these real animal products without harming animals at all. And I think that will go a long way to satiating our demand for real animal products. 
in a much more much more humane way. Yeah, I'm 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 super excited by that field of research, and I, I definitely want to get to that. But I I don't want to I don't want to allow you to use it as a way to dodge the moral que- the moral questions either, <laughs> because uh, I think they I think they will still remain at at least at the, at the periphery. You know, pardon the interruption, but right now at AT and T, you can get unlimited data and never pay overages again. Enjoy unlimited entertainment, surf, shop, binge, listen, navigate stream, all that stuff. That means unlimited We The People Live, for the record, streaming anywhere. And did we mention that only the AT&T Unlimited Plus plan comes with HBO included? Well, it does. Learn more at att.com slash unlimited so you can enjoy your data and entertainment. After 22 gigabytes of data usage, AT&T may slow speeds. The plan includes StreamSaver, and videos will stream in standard definition unless you turn it off. Credits for HBO start within two bills. Channels available are subject to change. Charges, other usage, and restrictions apply, of course. See att.com slash unlimited for details. You mentioned, mm-hmm. so you mentioned Ford uh, liberated horses by inventing the car. He also created a world in which there are a lot fewer horses, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so yeah. is it better, would it be, would it be a better world... If we were able to get rid of eating, if we all became vegan, there would be a lot fewer chickens and a lot fewer cows in the world. Is it better to... And a lot more wild animals. And a lot more wild animals. Uh, Yeah, although probably the plains of Nebraska would be filled with, with, still filled with corn if they weren't going to be filled with chicken slaughterhouses, right? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the biggest corn consumer is farm animals. I mean, farm animals are the reason why the vast majority of corn and soy is grown in both in the U.S. and the world. So by reducing demand for meat, even if you just cut it without even eliminating it, you end up reducing uh, the number of acres that are, are planted for livestock feed. That's that's true. Um, let's let's assume, though, that by that everyone overnight stops eating chicken and chickens go extinct. Is that a net win? Um, I don't think that chickens go extinct. I mean, we still have horses and we still, uh, even though most of us never get into a horse-drawn carriage, (laughs) I do think that you have a lot of uh, pet chicken keeping. I think a lot of people want backyard chickens for eggs, for example. But uh, overall, I do think that the lives that chickens have today, by and large, are not worth living and that they suffer in such an enormous amount that their life is a curse to them. In other words, it is to say, that uh, for many of the farm animals raised, especially chickens, the day of slaughter is the best day of their lives. It's the day that the misery finally comes to an end. So if the choice were for me to be a chicken in a factory farm who gets sla- who is tormented for months and then slaughtered or never to have existed, I think it would be a gift never to have existed. Now, you have a harder problem for animals who really do have lives that are worth living, where they have good lives, and I think that's a more difficult question to pose. And uh, frankly, if, if all farm animals had lives that were worth living, I'd probably go do something else with my life because I would consider there to be much bigger problems. Mm. So my, my brother-in-law uh, lives in New Hampshire. Uh, on a lake and has chickens in a chicken house, and they seem uh, they seem they seem pretty happy. He uh, he eats their eggs, and uh, <laughs> I, I assume he won't eat them. But <laughs> um, if I don't think you you eat hen laying egg uh, chickens, do you? But uh, let's let's assume that he wanted to kill one of them and put a, put him in a pot. Uh, is there anything morally wrong with with taking the life of a happy chicken? Mm-hmm. So um, I guess it would depend on what else he might be eating other than that. If it was if he was going to go out and buy 
the chicken meat from the supermarket, yeah, I think it might be preferable to do that. Um, I wouldn't do it because I would rather just live and let live. You know, we don't have to eat meat in order to be healthy. I haven't really eaten meat for over two decades and I feel great. So my choice uh, personally is just live and let live, that if we can avoid causing suffering and avoid causing violence to others, it's generally preferable to do that. But I don't see the world so much in black and white as much as I think there are tones of gray. And I would think about what else might he be eating otherwise. I would also think about is he making steps in the right direction? Did he, you know, used to eat, let's say, you know, uh, seven chickens a week and now he's going down to one. Is That would be better. So there's a lot of these utilitarian calculations. I would probably want to know more variables about your brother-in-law. Um, but – I would say that that is certainly morally preferable to what most people do, which mm. is just go to KFC or go to you know the supermarket and buy meat from animals who led lives that were truly deplor- deplorable. When you say that, it's I'm glad that you say that this is all about shades of grey because I think one of the main criticisms or, or caricatures of vegetarianism and veganism is that. Uh, that you think that all every animal life is equally valuable and that a snail <laughs> yeah, right. has the same rights to life as a human being does. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, that's certainly not Singer's position. I'm assuming it's not your position. But once you concede right. that there are different levels of, uh, I don't even want to use the word rights because I think that kind of confuses it, but different, we all, different species ha- have different psychological capacities. They have different expectations, different capacities for hopes and fears. Presumably, a human being. Let's let actually let's exclude human beings because a lot of people think that humans have an exclusive right to life that other animals <laughs> don't. But let's compare, say, a chimpanzee to one of the chickens in my brother-in-law's hen house to one of the bugs that the chicken is eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your take on the relative uh, wrongness of destroying each of those three lives? Well, um, I certainly would have a a much different visceral reaction to each of them. Now, I don't know how much of that is based on our bias toward those who are more similar to we are uh, to us. I mean, we have a bias toward those who are more like us. So we're going to be more biased toward a chimp and presumably other mammals as well. Then we'll be a lot more biased uh, toward a chicken than to an insect and and so on. And then, you know, go on down the line. Um, So yeah, I would have a very different reaction, but no, I I don't uh, think that all of us deserve uh, the same type of, um, the same type of uh, consideration, let's say. I would think like if I were walking and a snail were in front of me, I would do my best to avoid stepping on the snail. But I wouldn't be as concerned about that snail as I would be about, let's say, if I were driving and a chimpanzee was in the road. No, I would probably feel um, a lot differently um, in my if I were to, let's say, accidentally kill one or the other. It would be a very different experience for me. Is it is that just the experience, or do you rationally think that it's worse? Yeah, I, I do. I do both. I think there's it's both the experience, and I think that there is a justifiable argument for why that is as well, uh, for the reason that you stated, uh, based on the psychological capacities of these animals. Now, that is not to say that I think well, you know, if more intelligence gets you greater protection. If we did that, I mean, you quickly lead to, you know, asking questions about humans who are what would be considered so-called marginal cases who aren't in, in, as intelligent as the norm, let's say. Well, and, um, and Peter Singer does make make, make those 
um, those th- those kinds of thought experiments, which is what gets him in so much hot water. You know, he says, "How how can it be? How can it be okay to torture other primates who have language capacities and aspirations, and we know are capable of love, in the interests of testing uh, cosmetics and pharmaceuticals?" But it's not okay for a brain dead uh, infant who has no possibility of ever being conscious to have its life terminated because that would be murder, but the other one is is all right. Isn't that an inevitable right. thought experiment that has to come out of these kinds of calculations, these I, kind of it, judgment, judgment? Yeah. I totally agree with you that it is a thought experiment that's worth uh, that's worth executing. At the same time, in Peter's defense, I will say that that's a response to the argument of someone who believes so strongly in human exceptionalism that that person would say, well, what is it about being homo sapiens that makes us so special that we get total protection under all circumstances and other animals get no protection or virtually no protection to the point where even, as you said, they can be experimented on just to produce a new eyeliner or a new lipstick. And the person who believes in that type of of total human supremacy would say, oh, well, it's our intelligence, or they come up with some type of a characteristic that inevitably some group of humans will lack, and uh, like an encephalic baby, as you mentioned. And so it's just to point holes in that. But what I found is that those types of arguments in favor of that type of extreme version of human supremacy um, are the people who adhere to them usually they fail to comply with the logical law of gravity like they hear the counter arguments like that thought experiment and they just end up coming even though the legs of the table have been kicked out that are supporting it they, the table still floats that's the, like the logical law of gravity the table is, is still floating and my experience with them is that they normally just say well we're human or maybe we have a soul um, or something else that doesn't really provide an intellectually satisfying response as to why all humans deserve total protection and all animals are instruments for our use for even the most trivial uses like mm. cosmetics. Right, uh, right. But I mean, the so the once th- that's why I kind of wanted to exclude Homo sapiens from this conversation because people have mm-hmm. have weird, funky feelings about their own species, as you would expect them yeah. to. I mean, pigs probably have more yes. affinity for other pigs than they do for human <laughs> beings as well. And if they were writing the code of, of morality, I'm sure pigs would be at the top of the tree. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've often joked that if, if pigs believed in God, it's, it would not be surprising that their God would, of course, have a snout and hooves. And yeah. I'm also don't, I also don't think it would be that surprising if their God maybe had, if, excuse me, if their devil had a human face, uh, just yes. in the way that we've treated them. I mean, but so let's get, let, let's talk about these comparative capacities of different species. I was having lunch with a vegetarian friend of mine the other day. I suggested we were at a restaurant and I suggested that we get the the prawns uh, to start. And I completely forgot it. Prawns were just not located in my brain in the animal category in the same way that I think oysters and other mollusks aren't, partly because I'm an idiot and partly just because they're it strikes me that their nervous system is so simple and their capacity for thought and feeling so vastly different from those of, from ours and and from other Mm -hmm. mammals that I almost think it's kind of meaningless to talk about the, the interests of an oyster. Yet I care very deeply about the interests of other primates 
And you, indeed, yourself, at the beginning of this conversation, were talking about how pigs are kind of more intelligent than dogs and they're capable of affection. You can teach them to sit and so on. Intellect must matter. And if so, why? I think it matters for a lot of things. And so first, I want to say I I would be surprised if bivalves like oysters and clams had many interests that they were conscious of at all. Um, In terms of uh, animals like shrimp and prawns, that's probably a more complicated case for me. But I would exhibit some moral caution in that, you know, you think about, yes, these animals are extraordinarily different from us. But we have found that some animals, even animals who have extremely different neural capacities than we do who still end up appearing to have quite complex mental lives like octopi and squid, for example, who lack many of the type of brain structures that we have, even uh, nervous system structures. We can't really comprehend what it would be like to be them, but we do find that they're actually, there's a lot going on in their minds. And even if we don't understand how they perceive the world, they do appear to have some serious interests. So I I would express some moral caution um, you know, on you know, I think about like my parents, for example, who are basically uh, vegetarians except they eat oysters and clams because they think that they don't feel or think about anything, which may end up being true. I don't know. Um, I would prefer one. I don't really have an interest in eating them, but two. You know, I would probably exhibit at least some moral caution on it. Um, but I think that where they've come out is a pretty morally tenable place, actually. And uh, I would be quite thrilled for other people to do the same. Jeremy Bentham, the philosopher, famously said that the, I think it was him, right, the, who said the, the, the relevant question is not whether animals can can think, but whether they can feel. Was that the, the way that he framed it? It was something like yes. that anyway. And, and so, Mike, so let's, let's ignore bivalves for a moment. And let's just talk about the, a, a kind of a hierarchy of animals. Let's go back to, I don't know, the the chimpanzee and the chicken and then the bug that the chicken eats. If Let's assume that all three of those things can feel in some way. They can feel pain and they they at least they can understand that there's something horrible happening when they're having their limbs ripped off or their head cut off, right? Uh, I was talking to Richard Dawkins at a live event recently where I was moderating a conversation with him and we were talking about this. And he, he said that you could imagine from the perspective of an evolutionary biologist that it might actually make more sense to say that the less intelligent a species is, the more pain that it feels because it can't understand why it shouldn't do things that are bad for it. So very, very rudimentary sensations like pain have to loom larger in the conscious, in its conscious experience than it would need to for, for example, a human who has all kinds of rational reasons why that why we know that we also shouldn't put our hand into a into boiling water or into a, into a fire. Pardon the interruption, but I want to tell you about another podcast that I've been enjoying. Let me ask you this first: How is your relationship with money? I have such an ambivalent relationship with money because sometimes I'm reasonably good at saving it up, and sometimes I'm not terribly good. And in throughout my lifetime, I've occasionally been smashed by horrible investments and lost everything and then occasionally i just do silly things like sign up for a credit card forget that it's going to have a big annual fee drop 12 months later and then there it is in my wallet and all of a sudden that's on my statement and i slap myself in the head and i think you fool well we're all like that a bit with money aren't we everyone has their story that they sort of feel is unique and it is but money is so essential that we're all united by our financial stories and our struggles and our triumphs. 
So Open Account is a podcast that approaches these things differently. It talks about money and power and class and culture in a very honest way and breaks down some of the more complicated aspects of finance in ways that are informative and entertaining, I think. And once you conquer all of the emotions behind money, you can make more informed decisions. You can have a less frightening relationship with your finances. Open Account is created by Umpqua Bank, and it's hosted by Chin Park. The new season starts on June 30th, so subscribe today, and you can download past episodes of Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. So why, why should intellect matter at all? Why do you even appeal to the analogy between pigs and dogs? earlier on in the conversation. I mean, if, if let's just assume that a, a grub is just as capable of feeling badness mm-hmm. as a pig is. Well, I think different things will cause different amounts of suffering. And so uh, for animals who have a higher amount of intelligence, that's not to say that I, I would you know, want to subject them any more or less to suffering, but it is to say they may be able to experience suffering in different ways. But I think that the, and in some cases, uh, they're planning for the future. And so killing them may do more harm than killing an animal who, for example, has no future plans. Uh, at the same time, I mean, that's a, that's a question, that's a controversial Controversial matter, what I was just talking about, future planning. But I do think it may have some relevance. Um, at the same time, um, I think <clears throat> an animal like um, an insect, one, I mean, there are studies that show that when you cut so- some insects, when their limbs are ripped off, uh, they just keep on eating. <laughs> they just keep on going about their their life, which may make some evolutionary sense uh, because they live for such a short amount of time that there's they're not going to heal anyway. So there there may be some benefit there compared to if let's say a chicken had her leg cut off, where she would be in extraordinary agony for a long time. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think. We have to consider that different animals will experience the same thing differently. So you mentioned a case of um, the lack or being less intelligent may increase their suffering. And in that case, I would think it was worse. So, for example, let's say you, Josh, go to the dentist and you know that you're going to have some discomfort, maybe even some real pain, but you can bear through it because you know it's for your, it's for the better, that it's really in your long-term interest. Take, on the other hand, let's say a gorilla and take him to the dentist and go through the same exact procedure, his uh, pain and, frankly, terror might be e- extraordinary. Compared yeah, if you need to volunteers yours. to take a gorilla to the dentist, <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, right. It might be more pain for the dentist, actually, but <laughs> take an animal, let's say, who couldn't fight back, like a, like a rhesus monkey. Um, and, you know, his, his pain may actually be, um, may be greater than mm. what yours would be. So, uh, you know, that understanding is real. I asked Dawkins uh, one time, what his view on vegetarianism was. And he was pretty clear. He, he was pretty um, blunt in his view. He said he wishes everybody was a vegetarian, that he thought it was the right thing to do. Mm. He said he struggles with himself doing it, but that he said that he thinks that future generations are going to look back in the same way that we look back on slavery and think, how could anybody have done that? And, you know, a lot of other people have expressed that view, too. Mm. Uh, I don't, Dawkins isn't alone in that. But I do have some, some sympathy for the view that future generations are going to be pretty repulsed when they realize the type of things that we allowed and, in fact, perpetrated against animals who posed us no harm, who posed no threat to us, and who'd done nothing to deserve it. I mean, we treat 
animals, especially farm animals, worse than the most heinous criminals in our society. We don't take mm. murderers and rapists and put them in jail cells where they literally can't even turn around for their entire lives. Yet simply because they were born as pigs or because they were born as chickens, uh, that's the sentence for these animals. Life sentence, no parole. They're never getting out except when they go on the back of a truck to their execution. So I, I think there's going to be a harsh judgment of future um, future generations. Yeah, I mean, I'm, doing I'm inclined to agree. I certainly hope so, because if, if it's not the case, then that means that uh, the forces of, of brutality will win in other ways, I suspect. Like, I mean, it it strikes me that our treatment of animals is kind of the next wave in the ongoing succession of kind of liberation movements stretching all the way back. And and, and that if, if we don't get there, then it'll be because we've, we've skewed off in some way that is, is disastrous, not just for animals, but for ourselves. Um, why do you think there's so much, I would sort of understand callous, our callousness towards animals if, well, towards non-human animals, if we were consistent about it and we and we treated all animals with the with equal disdain what i what i find a bit peculiar is people's attitudes towards dogs and cats you mentioned this paradox earlier people are horrified when they find out that i have eaten dog in southeast asia but i i mean i didn't do it cavalierly i ate it because i sort of feel like it's my moral duty in a way to not be a total fucking hypocrite if like if i do eat pigs I, I want to make a I, I want to make a drop quote of that. Josh Sepps, it is my moral duty to not be a total fucking hypocrite. I would love <laughs> that's gonna be the next meme. That's gonna be the next meme on Facebook. <laughs> make that the new the new tagline of We the People Live. Um, but why do you think why do you think we love dogs and cats so much when we don't give a shit about about comparable other animals? Yeah. Well, I I think you're raising a good point that – so first and foremost, we love those with whom we are familiar. When we view um, others as, frankly, other, it becomes a lot easier to view them with disdain and to uh, justify all types of cruelty toward them. So in uh, societies where uh, pet keeping of dogs and cats is customary, the thought of eating them is really repulsive. Uh, in a society, though, where they don't have much of a history of pet keeping of dogs and cats, like in some Asian cultures, eating them is no more foreign to them than eating a pig or a chicken. Similarly, in India, where they know cows very well, where they where cows are walking in the street, they consider them sacred in a lot of places, the idea of eating a cow is reprehensible. Yet here, we don't even think twice about it. It really goes back to thinking about how if we are familiar, let's say, with other people, uh, whether they are of other races, other religions, nationalities, political viewpoints, when you become more familiar with them, it's much less it's much more difficult to hate them and to want to persecute them. But when you can view them as something categorically different and unfamiliar and foreign, the tribal nature that we have as having lived in tribal societies for you know more than 90% of Homo sapiens existence really kicks in for us. So dogs and cats got lucky, basically. <laughs> well, they got lucky. They got lucky here. But I do think that, for example, the increase in uh, pet keeping it with chickens in the United States, a lot of people having backyard chickens does lead a lot of people to uh, second guess uh, their consumption mm. of those birds. Uh, a lot of people, when they become vegetarians or even when they don't, when they just start to feel a bit icky about eating meat, will cut out red meat and uh, will only eat chicken. Sometimes that's just for irrational reasons because they don't like the look of blood or something in in a steak. But sometimes they make they make a moral case, um, which often has something to do with 
chickens being dumb and whatnot. But I heard an interesting argument that posited that we shouldn't really care about the quantity of meat that we eat as meat eaters. We should care about the quantity of brains that we're destroying and experiences that we are forcing sentient creatures to undergo. And that by that yardstick, you could argue that eating eggs is worse than eating beef just because you need so many, there are so many more chickens living horrible lives in order to produce your eggs than there would be cows producing your beef. You can only eat so much of a cow in any given setting, but you can ruin the lives of multiple chickens per day in your egg consumption. Do you give that any credence? An enormous amount of credence. In fact, I have often said that if you really are concerned about reducing the amount of suffering that you're causing, that you're better off eating a, a steak than you are an omelet. It's because there's a lot more suffering per calorie, to use a, a, a unheard of term, in the, uh, in the omelet. It's not only for the reason that you know, because the animals are so small, but it's also because uh, cattle who are used for beef generally are not nearly as abused as chickens and pigs are. So cattle raised for beef, of course, they, they are in feedlots, they're often pumped full of drugs, and they're castrated without painkiller and branded and, and all types of other horrors that befall them. But compared to the chickens, I mean, these animals are outside, they can walk around, they can engage in many of their normal behaviors, as opposed to, let's say, chickens on an egg farm who are immobilized their whole lives, who can't even extend their own limbs. Um, yeah, it's a lot more suffering. And so you're right that the smaller the animal, the more of them who are needed to be exploited, but also the smaller animals generally have it a lot worse. Uh, so, I mean, let's just say, for example, that everybody stopped eating beef in the United States. And so these beef cattle uh, ceased to exist. You wouldn't have even eliminated 1% of the farm animal population in the country because poultry, chickens and turkeys represent over 95 plus percent wow. of the farm animals we're raising. So when if somebody switches, let's say from beef to chicken, they are both killing a lot more animals and causing a lot more suffering. If you have to do one, you'd be better to switch from chicken to beef, in fact. Uh, let's talk about uh, about clean meat about or lab-grown meat, as some people might uh, might talk <laughs> about it. And, and uh, we, we don't have a lot of time left, so maybe we can revisit this at another date because I think it's a, it's a fascinating field. But talk to me about where the science is at of being able to – like I can imagine that we're not very far off being able to produce a chicken nugget or a meatball – that tastes just like a chicken nugget or a meatball, but comes from animal flesh that was grown in a lab that didn't come from a creature that had a brain, but is but is nonetheless made out of actual flesh. Not it's not it's not it's not fake tofu stuff. Um, but I kind of I, I think it strikes me that it'll be a long time before we get a really good steak, for example. Where's the science at? Yeah, well, Josh, uh, you're you're very astute because first, we're not far off from uh, chicken nuggets and meatballs. In fact, both of those have already been produced and consumed. Um, but those are both ground meat products. So the science is uh, the science is capable of producing today ground meat beef, sausage, chicken nuggets, which is actually about half of all the meat that we consume in the U.S. Uh, at the same time, a steak is far more complex. Whole cuts of meat is really far off. So we're probably going to have some clean animal products on the market within the next year, products like leather, milk, uh, egg whites, uh, gelatin, and so on. But the meat will probably not be like uh, chicken nuggets, meatballs, probably won't be commercialized for a, another four or five years. 
And then a stake, there's not even a horizon. We don't know. Like that technology is so undreamt of right now that we don't really know how long it'll be. Maybe 10, 15, 20 years. It's just pure speculation. But I've eaten it. I've had the yogurt. I've had the um, I've had liver. I've had beef. And, uh, you know, it might seem odd for me as a vegan to say, oh, yeah, I'm eating these products, but I'm not a vegan because of some religious reason or some statement of personal identity for me. It's just uh, an effort to try to reduce the amount of suffering that I cause. And these are products that are being uh, brought into existence without the animals. I mean, they're removing the animals from the equation and they have a much, much smaller footprint. I mean, life cycle analyses are finding, for example, that compared to regular animal products, these have 99% less land use, uh, something like 80% less water use, perhaps 70% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, much less energy use and so on. And so it both is a big win for animal welfare, but it's a huge win for sustainability because as the world population grows and as more of the developing world gets more developed, meat cons- demand for meat is only going up. And we have to produce that protein in a way that is both sustainable and acceptable to people and producing it in this type of a queen way. And I say queen because it's like queen energy. It's queen meat is like the queen energy of meat. And it's literally cleaner. You don't have the type of pathogens like E. coli and salmonella because the, that are riddled into the meat today because those, um, those pathogens are intestinal. We're not growing mm. intestines. We're not growing intestines. We're growing muscle. Well, you and might so grow you... some intestines. There are people in the world who eat intestines. <laughs> yeah, people... <laughs> I like that you mentioned clean, that you, they want clean. Yeah, they want <laughs> did clean you say haggis. that you'd eaten, you'd eaten clean liver? Yeah, yeah. And okay. uh, for the intestinal lovers, they may want queen haggis, yeah. but I don't think that's been, that's <laughs> exactly. not been produced yet. We're going to have a, a world population of ten billion people all eating uh, all eating lab grown liver. Uh, Paul Shapiro, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's fascinating to talk to you. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for being on the show, Josh. It's my honor to be with you. Thanks so much. If you enjoy conversations like this, then there are plenty more. You know where to get them. If you want to be part of the conversation, if you want to be part of We The People Nation, you can pledge a small monthly donation to help cover our costs at patreon.com slash WTP. Or just if you don't have any money, you can leave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, You can leave a comment on iTunes. That helps the algorithm encourage other people to find the show. If you're a regular podcast listener, you know all this. So I'm simply saying this to put it in your ear hole just in case you are kind enough to spend 30 seconds or, or one minute today actually bothering to do it. In the meantime, I'll see you next time and make debate healthy again. Bye.